we only have time. We don't have more resources. We don't have more people. We don't have more patents or technology. We just have time and agility. You're listening to Startup Korea. Hello, my Yojas and Namjas, and welcome to another episode of Startup Korea, the podcast that features the entrepreneurs and investors of Korea. My name is Abel Acuna, Abel Emnida, and this show is all about learning from the entrepreneurs who have started their companies, grown their companies, sold or crashed and burned their companies here in Korea. I'll also be interviewing new startup founders so that we can learn about the categories of business that they're looking to create or innovate in. Now, this is a brand new show. If you like what you hear or if you have any feedback, suggestions, or anyone that you would like me to interview, feel free to email me directly at abel at startupkorea.co. That's A-B-E-L. Now, you can find all the episodes there at startupkorea.co, or you can subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Just search for Startup Korea in either of those platforms and you'll find it. Now, for those of you who do not know me, I am a previous startup founder here in Korea. I'm American and I went to school in the U.S. And when I was graduating from university, I had the opportunity to help start and found a company here in Korea. And I took it and it was a wild ride. We helped grow this company for three years and later had it acquired. Ever since then, I've just been diving deeper and deeper into the world of startups here. So that's what Startup Korea is all about. This episode features John S. Kim. John is the CEO of Jiver, Smile Family, and previously CEO of Paprika Lab. Our conversation together covers John's history as an entrepreneur here in Korea, how and why John started his first company, Paprika Lab, how John and I met out in Silicon Valley with his current company, Jiver, and John's experience as a Techstars London batch member. Also, as a special treat, we go back and chat about John's days as a pro gamer playing Unreal Tournament and becoming the number one ranked player in Korea and third in the world. John's a very bright entrepreneur and a great team leader. Please enjoy this conversation with John. I am here with John S. Kim, the CEO of Jiver, previously CEO of Paprika Lab. John, welcome to the show. Hey, well, thank you for the, uh, inviting me. No problem. It's good to see you again. We're here at Maru 180, which is a co-working space an incubator, and offices for some VC firms here in Korea. Mm-hmm. Now, are you guys based here? Um, so we have two offices, one in San Francisco, which is our headquarter, and we also have an R&D office here in Maru 180. Now, we met a couple years ago. We were both a part of a program called Startup Nomad. This was a program that was put on by the Korean government as well as VentureSquare. This was out in Sunnyvale. Mm-hmm. Do you remember those times? It was fun. I mean, we spent about, what, a little bit more than a month and had lots of drinks and fruitful meetings. But it's definitely a memorable experience. What's your take on Sunnyvale? Sunnyvale, ah, beautiful grass. Very <laughs> thick, strong grass. And I can sort of feel why all those great startups come out of Sunnyvale or the Silicon Valley area. It's the nurturing soil. Yes, nurturing soul. No matter how hard you step on the grass, they always grow back. Resilient. (laughs) Resilience is key, of course, in startups. 
Now, what were you doing then, and what were you doing there at Startup Nomad? So um, we started out as a company building product called Smile Mom, which was a local mom's community. And uh, we got accepted to the program, uh, and we spent uh, about a month, a little bit over a month there, uh, trying to find potential investors, as well as talking to our customers, and also having meetings with potential uh, partners as well. So we had some pretty good experience there, uh, made a lot of new connections. But uh, recently, we are focusing on a different direction with our new product called Jiver, which actually is a derivative product that came out of Small Mom. So I guess ultimately, you know, we're going the right direction. Okay. You're at Startup Nomad with this product, Smile Mom. What was that about? So the product is mainly about you know, trying to solve daily problems that moms moms with young kids have. Um, by then, you know, I was married. Uh, I am married today. <laughs> and I have two kids. And I saw, you know, all our co-founders had a very similar issue with their family that their wives were very stressed out, you know, raising their young kids. And we want to create this local moms community where they can find moms in their area with similar age kids. So you can like ask questions, you know, buy and sell used baby products and so forth. And it was interesting because we started out in Korea, but we had more users coming in from US and they had much better retention, much better engagement all in all. That's why one of the reasons why we flew to US and try to talk to our customers there, what they were thinking, why they were using our product instead of other substitutes out there. It was a great learning experience when you actually have a sit down with your customers and try to learn their thought process. And you mentioned that out of your work on the SmileMon product, you then created this new service called Jiver. What is Jiver? So Jiver is the simplest solution for building real-time communication. Uh, features within your app or game. And uh, basically, we had to build like chat and messaging feature uh, into the Smile Mom product because a lot of moms were asking for features like private messaging or group chats. And, you know, we looked around to find a solution that we could use, but we couldn't really find the one that fit into our, our app. So we had to build everything from scratch. And a lot of our friends who were also developing their own apps or games were asking us what solution we had used. So we told them, you know, we couldn't really find the one that we could use. So we had to build everything ourselves. And they were like asking us, hey, can you like pull it out into SDK and use it on our products as well? So we thought it was a very natural story. So we did that. And our friends started asking us like, so how much do we have to pay you? I'm like, oh, you're paying us? That's great. So that's sort of like our first revenue stream. After that, it was the rest of history, I guess. So, you know, we were getting more sales. Uh, we were talking to more par- partners here. Also, companies from, like, all over the world, not, not just U.S., from, like, Middle East, Pakistan, or whatnot. So we realized that a lot of these developers out there today were facing the same issue of this reinventing the wheel of creating messaging and chat feature in their apps. So we were just, you know, selling this pickaxe mm-hmm. uh, in the days of this gold rush. Right. I love what you guys are doing with Jiver. It's just such a core problem that every developer, no matter what size they are, maybe they're just a single indie developer or they're a larger company building out a new product, Mm -hmm. they all face this recurring problem every time they want to build a new product or make their product social. Yeah, I think what you're doing is is really smart with Jiver. When did you make the decision to focus more on Jiver? It was a pretty recent decision. Um, it was made around early this year. 
So until end of last year, we were just playing around with the idea uh, when you know our friends started asking us, and we just did a little hackathon within our company, pulled it out, and you know, start playing with our own product. And um, then early this year, you know, we had some inbound interest from other, I guess, distributors in Korea, companies like IGA Works, who are doing exceptionally well in Korea. They partner with us. They are distributing our SDK into Korea and Japanese and Taiwanese market. And, you know, that's when we started generating some meaningful revenue. So we talked to our investors, our board of directors, and they all agreed that uh, this is the new right direction to take our company. After that, it's actually much more liberating now because our previous product was more culturally dependent and we didn't really have a good visibility into U.S. mom's market or whatnot. But uh, with Jiver, it's very technology driven. Uh, we know the problem. We have a solution. And we can actually sell it all over the world because the market is still early emerging. I think we're just in a better position to make this into a big success. What was it like having that conversation with the rest of your team mm-hmm. to get everyone on board to this new direction? That's actually interesting because, um, you know, we were like thinking about talking about Smile Mom for some while now. And everyone sort of felt Jiver was more appealing to them as well, even though we had already spent so much time and effort working on Smile Mom. You know, when we saw the problem and when we actually made a solution and when we saw this, our customers' face and eyes lit up, felt like, hey, this is something that actually people really want, like right now, today. And they were willing to pay for it. And they didn't really ask for like huge discount. They're like, just give it to us. We'll use it. We know it's going to cost us money. We're willing to pay it. And that was a natural aha moment for us. So uh, when they saw the customers on the next day, we were like all jumping onto this new direction. So I think people are a lot better engaged now. It's always nice to make something that people want Mm -hmm. and even better yet, that people will pay for. Yeah. (laughs) So it's a great feeling. So that's Jiver. Before Jiver, you were at Techstars Mm -hmm. London. Is Mm -hmm. that right? Yep. When did you join the Techstars London? Okay, so Techstars happened in early 2013, sorry, 2014. So it was about 90 days, and uh, we joined with our product, Smile Mom. Mm-hmm. And even during then, we were growing pretty fast because every single week, uh, we had grown more than 10% or even like closer to 20% every single week. So oh. we grew from a few thousand users to, uh, I guess, 100,000 users or roughly near that during those period. So we were growing pretty fast and I would say 90% of those users were coming from US and UK market. So it was a very good um, development sprint. That was Techstars, but after that, this driver happened and our managing director at Techstars is fully supporting our new direction. What is it like being a part of Techstars? Frankly, it was really good because when you're away in a country where you don't have any families or friends, sorry to say to our family, but um, you can like focus on your work like for you know, such intensity because you can't really do it once you have like kids, you have other issues to take care of. Right. But you're there, you have all the excuses eliminated, right? Mm-hmm. So we literally, you know, sat down there, uh, three of us are co-founders, and uh, we literally worked 90 days straight from morning to midnight every single day, even during the Saturday and Sundays. So it was intense. That's how uh, we got a lot of things done. And I think a lot of other companies in the same batch appreciated that we were working our asses off. I think that perseverance and tenacity 
uh, like hard work ethics is something it's universal like when you show that to people people respect you for like no matter what cultural background you have what kind of attitude you show when you just do that you get respect and it's not just low productivity you really focus and you work your ass off and you get a lot of things done every single week you hit your own goals and that's when progress happens and that's when culture sort of builds up were you the guys in the office who were there in the morning and there late at night 10 a.m to midnight back to back to back yeah so uh, i think there were a few companies who came in a little bit earlier because mm-hmm. there are some early birds i guess but um mm-hmm. Well, yeah, in night, we're definitely the guys who are the last out of the building. Now, this isn't surprising to me because I was at 500 Startups earlier this year, mm-hmm. and the Korean teams there were mm-hmm. always the last to leave, mm-hmm. too. It became just a recurring theme where you would just expect the Korean teams to be there the latest. So if you're the second to last, mm-hmm. then there is a small victory in <laughs> that there, too. Yeah, I think the work ethic that... That Korean teams go, other teams, they notice it. And I think as long as it's meaningful work Mm -hmm. and actually productive, Mm -hmm. then yeah, it's something that definitely crosses boundaries. I don't think it's just Korean thing. Uh Like when you like read things from like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, they all work really, really hard. And the level of work ethic is something that only startups can have. We only have time. We don't have more resources. We don't have more people. We don't have more patents or technology. We just have time and agility. You work really hard. You focus on the single goal and be flexible enough to change directions when necessary. That's probably the only competitive advantage we have over any other form of companies out there today. We just try to maximize it. Do you think it's harder now that you're back with your family, Mm -hmm. you have some of the home issues that you have to manage you have some of the, the social issues, you have your friends here, your network mm-hmm. in Korea that you might have to ma- maintain. Um, it's harder, but also, I mean, it's funny because for the last two weeks or something, I average time I went home is like either 2 a.m. or 4 a.m., somewhere in between. So I'm actually working longer hours. But um, yeah, but like when your friends who is also doing a startup comes by and wants to have a coffee, you can't say no like every single time. So sometimes you have to cater to your social relationship, which is not always bad. And also, you know, when you're with your family, you have to take care of your family for sure. It's important. Yes. But even the weekends, I come out and come out to work on Sundays. I try to dedicate myself fully to the family on Saturday. That's my commitment to the family. It is really nice to have these sprints though, Mm -hmm. these 90-day sprints or even a week-long sprint. Mm -hmm. And then it also helps you appreciate your your friends and family once you're back from that sprint. What do you think is one of the most valuable things that you took away from your Techstars experience? I think it's just a mix, but ultimately I think it's just the team, the importance of team Mm. and the network. So when I say team, you know, when you go through the program, you build a special bond with your co-founders, but also with other startup teams. So I think just having the sheer sense of belonging that you're not alone in this journey is really uh, liberating in a certain way. There was this moment when one of the tech stars company sort of fell apart because one of their co-founders had some issues. They had a co-founder breakup, but all the other teams were there for him and supported their decision. And so ultimately, the other, the first engineer became their new CTO, and their company is doing pretty well these days. 
think it's just important that you're not alone in this journey and you have this single batch of friends who you can always reach out and ask for help. That's very important. And you also appreciate what we are doing in a deeper sense that we're trying to make something better out of this world. And it takes a lot of work and you sort of build that belief uh, even gets stronger and stronger when you go through the program. Now, I want to take it back a little. Let's talk about gaming. Okay. <laughs> you, you must have known that this was going to come up. Not my favorite subject, but still, <laughs> yeah, I'm open to it. But first, Paprika Lab. Mm -hmm. Could you explain what Paprika Lab did? Paprika Lab was a social gaming company. Uh, we started out on Facebook games, and we got acquired when we were changing to the mobile games, mobile social games back then in 2012. And we had about, uh, I think, cumulatively had about 5 million users, which doesn't seem big today, but it was one of those rare companies where you had more than a million users on Facebook. We were about 30 people large when we got acquired. It lasted for about four and a half years. So you guys started kind of in the beginning, right when Facebook was growing so quickly mm -hmm. and then they opened their platform mm -hmm. to social gaming. So you, you were part of that kind of early yep. Zynga time. Yes, I guess we were six to nine months late to the party because it was a little bit tough to persuade the investors that this is something that's actually going to materialize. But uh, ultimately they voted towards our direction. It was a good ride, good experience. Right, very timely again, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of a recurring theme I see in, in the things that you're making here. Is there something that you learn from making games? Because whenever you make a product or whenever you focus on a certain service segment, you learn so much about what you're making. Mm -hmm. And so you're focusing a lot on, on games. What's something unique to gaming that, that you think you, you learned? I think gaming is just a combination of art. So I believe I'm an engineer at heart. But gaming is a form of, form of an art because you have all these different dimensions that you have to take care of, not just like technology perspective, the game design has to be right, the game graphic style has to be right, even the sound and the music, and everything has to be very, I guess, harmonious. So even if you have the best technology in the world, it's not going to make your game fun. Even if you have the best game design, if everything sort of like is like buggy or the graphic style doesn't really, it's not really coherent with your game design and so forth, then the game's not going to work. Everything has to be really, really well balanced in a certain way. But at the same time, you have to have at least one very distinctive, unique aspect to make your game stand out out of your after ranks or out of a press release or whatnot. So it's a form of an art. You know, gaming is an entertainment industry. So there's that sort of artistic nature to it. But ultimately, again, it comes down to the team. If you have the right team, right balance, right mixture of the team, then they're going to pull it off. But if you have a bad team, no matter how good the game concept is, no matter how good the game design is, you're just going to fail at executing it. Do you find that some of the lessons that you learned from making these games mm -hmm. are now being applied in the way that you make products now? The team that I started out with for my second company is the buddies from my first startup. So we all have that sort of a DNA uh, that we have experience with building games. So um, I, th I think it just definitely impacts our culture as well as the product, more so on the culture. I think the more of the lesson that I learned through doing my first start was more about company building, culture building, 
uh, how we you know work towards the goal, how we manage the milestones and so forth. So yeah, ultimately, I think it definitely affects how our second company is doing. Yeah, and this is something that I I was curious about too. Is what do you think are some of the most important things to keep in mind or to do when you're building a team? I think it's definitely about values and keeping your bars high because people are smart, especially if you're doing an IT or information technology startup. People are smart, and um, the impact that they can have on the team as well as the customer and the market is just. Very highly leveraged. So if you have a really, really smart engineer or smart product designer, the product he or she makes is going to impact like millions of people or even billions of people. You want to really look for the right talent. And when you're doing a startup, you are so either low on cash or tight on schedule or whatever for whatever reason, you're going to comp- start compromising on your hiring bars. But you just and there's going to be a lot of challenge also from inside because people who are you know working their asses off they're going to be really really exhausted so they're going to say hey we're we're just you know we just have so much work let's just hire this person and get this over with but that's when your company starts to deteriorate mm-hmm. your culture start, starts to break apart mm-hmm. so you always have to look for the best talent at least for the first 10 or 20 people right mm-hmm. after that you can go by your culture you can go by the system and the system somehow holds it up to a certain point. But even at that point, you want to make sure you have the best culture possible. It's hard. I'm not saying I'm, I'm doing a perfect job of it, but for instance, at our company, we have something called our seven core values, we, which we recently sort of engraved into stone. We have a mission statement, which is not just something that's vaguely put on the air. We have a very concrete mission statement. And this is attached to your, your name badge, Yep, pretty much. One of our guys who recently worked, uh, used to work at McKinsey and Dick and Monster, he's actually putting together a song about it. I don't know. Really? <laughs> he used to do some raps. I don't know. It's weird. But um, <laughs> anyway, so when you have these like, core values and when you hire, promote, communicate your daily tasks according to values, for instance, we have something called like endless tenacity for customers. So when you have a request from a customer, no matter how small it is, we just work our asses off to make sure that's taken care of. And we say it. I mean, we do it, we say it. And we also have to work to completion. It's, again, you, when you do startups, you have a lot of new tasks that's popping up here and there. And you see some of the tasks like fading away, like mm-hmm. not being completed or you, know, you just let your eyes off the ball or whatnot. But we never let that happen. We make sure all the cars are either deleted or it gets completed, right? It's not going to like disappear somehow right. somewhere so those are certain things and we actually say these phrases to make sure we are adhering like binding to these values to our daily tasks and our direction and when you just keep repeating that people's bars actually goes up they expect more out of themselves i think these kind of things are important but very just hard to execute how do you go about choosing the company values after you work for a long time you know you have a list of things that just people talk about and also you personally believe in as a founder and a leader so we put together this long list of 52 values and we actually voted and ultimately you put together the values and you sort of like realize that you thought like let's say you thought a was important but people were actually valuing b more then you somehow have to choose right sometimes you just choose whatever people wants but you also sometimes have to put in certain values that you believe is going to be important longer down the road. So you put together this mixture of values 
and distill it and maybe categorize it into regroup it into certain a few items and try to keep it less than 10, I guess. Mm. Like, you know, the magic number is seven plus minus two, right? So you try to keep it somewhere in between so that people can actually memorize it. So, yeah, we regrouped it, prioritized it, and made it into phrases. So And now they're on the back of your... Yeah, so 52 ID came card. down to seven. Wow, that is very cool. And it's right there. So, I mean, this is not something that's like going to be permanent forever. It mm-hmm. can change. For instance, Google used to have something called don't be evil. Now yeah. it's like you can make money without being evil is a little bit you know different facebook used to have like move fast and break things it's now about move fast unstable infrastructure or something as changes as your company grows not like set in stone but still this is the general direction that we're steering our company to right i want to step back to something that you mentioned about hiring Mm -hmm. because i think this is a problem that many startups face where they are strapped for cash Mm -hmm and time and they realize oh i need a person immediately Mm -hmm. to do x or y and so they start making compromises Mm -hmm. how do you stay ahead of the game so that you're not put in that type of position i'm going to be very honest about this we also had the made made similar mistakes in the past Uh, i'm sure we'll do more in the future but that's just something that you just keep try to keep your bars high and just say hey is this a person that we want to work with when we are you know, done with all these problems, if they're all, all the problems are gone, if we have a new set of problems, do we still want to work with this person? Do we see that her or him as a, someone who's going to grow as the company grows, who's going to come out as a leader, maybe not the ultimate leader, right? But at least show some sort of leadership within the company. And, uh, you know, we have our values work to completion. So if we don't have the person, we're going to still work to till it's done. So we'll just have to maybe work longer hours, maybe come out on weekends. But that's our responsibility, not this new person's responsibility. That's just something that you try to keep reminding yourself. But I don't think there's like a silver bullet, right? You cannot tell us if someone is really good or not for sure during this short, like three-hour interviews. And I think that it also requires vision of where you're going and where your product is going so that you can see the next steps and stages so Mm -hmm. that you're ready for that. And you're actively putting out feelers for someone who can fill that new mm-hmm. role before you get there. Now, before Paprika Lab, you were at NCSoft. Mm-hmm. And this was right after graduating from Seoul National University. I actually worked at NCSoft during my school years. Because okay. in Korea, you have this mandatory military thing that you have to cater to. Right. And uh, in Korea, if you have an engineering computer science background, you can work at a company instead of going to the military. So that's when I worked at NCSoft, and then I founded my company right after graduation. Wow, right after graduation. Yep. I was a little bit old. I was like 27 in Korea or something. I guess 26-ish in U.S. age when I founded my first company. What was, your, what was going on in your mind when you thought, okay, I'm going to graduate and I'm going to go start something new rather than joining someone else? I think Jeff Bezos put it right. Um, a lot of people mistake that founders are risk takers. Founders are people who hate risk. And we, but what we like to do is we like to solve problems. So when we see a risk, we want to minimize the risk by solving problems, not trying to you know, move away, shy away from the risk itself. So what I did was I laid down my, uh, I guess, I had this dream of creating this company that combines technology and good design and make our lives better, and it's cliche. But um, I sort of had that personal mission 
And I try to you know, map all my different careers or life roadmap towards that goal. And you know, like you could either go to choose to work at a consulting firm, go to an MBA, and then start your company, or work at a big conglomerate and learn stuff there or whatnot. My sort of ultimate decision was the least riskiest path because if I had gone down that path, then I'd probably have gotten married, have lots of social reputation that I have to put up with, probably had kids that I have to pay tuition for. But if I start like right off after graduation, I had none of that. I didn't have to eat luxurious dinners. I didn't have to go on like expensive vacations. I could just live off a few dollars a day, right? That's one of the reasons I did that was to minimize my risk. And I also had this belief that when you're riding a bicycle, you know, no matter how long you read a book about bicycles, you cannot ride a bike until you actually sit down, fall down a couple of times. I thought it was better to fall down early when you're more nimble and young. When your bones are still strong. Yeah, and be able to regenerate skins properly. <laughs> so um, so I sort of had to believe that it's like riding a bicycle. This starting, doing a startup is not a academic course. It's a real-life practice. A lot of people might think oppositely where they want to minimize their risk by first joining a bigger company mm-hmm. with a better brand name mm-hmm. so that then they'll be okay later on if, if they do try to make a startup and it doesn't work out. But yeah, you're right. At that time, when you have to make that decision about jumping into the world of startups and you already have years behind you at one of these bigger companies, you might have settled down and got a little comfortable, had some extra money around to pay for dates and eventually mm-hmm. get married or something like that, have kids. There's a lot more on the line at that point. Yeah, so I was fortunate enough to work at companies like NCSoft during my school years. So I think I already had like three plus years of decent amount of experience as an engineer and as well on the business side. So there was a luck on my side because all Korean guys have to go through the process. Now, before then, mm-hmm. we're going to talk about Unreal oh, a little bit here. Okay. <laughs> so you used to be a pro gamer. Yep. And you were number one in Korea Uh and number three worldwide. Uh And that was part of a a big tournament called WCG. And what does that stand for? Uh, World Cyber Games. That's one of the biggest uh, pro gamer competitions in the world. I don't know if it's still going on today, but it used to be probably the biggest. This is uh, unreal for people who might not know. This is a first-person shooter if you're familiar with something like Halo or something like that, that's kind of Counter Strike, yeah. Quake. How do you think gaming has influenced your path as far as careers or startup goes? Okay, um, it probably influenced a lot of a lot into my brain as well, well as my personal life. I mean, like when I look back, I started out online gaming when I was in my middle school. You know that the book Outlier is spent like. 10,000 hours, I probably spent like 100,000 hours playing games. I don't know. Forever, right? Okay. As with all engineers do. Like, we played a lot of games, but uh, I have this, I, I'm, I can get a little bit too competitive at times. So I try to pick my battles wisely these days. But uh, when I was young, I was brash. I tried to compete in all different aspects. And then I happened to stumble upon this online gaming. And the problem with gaming. On my end is I have this addiction problem when there are three conditions are met. One, if it's measurable. Two, if it's personally trainable. Third, uh, if it's either something that has to do with precision or speed. 
Mm. So if all these three conditions are met, I'm usually addicted to it like immediately. For instance, gaming, first-person shooters, you can train it by yourself. It's quantifiable because you have ranks and scores. Uh, also has to do with speed and precision, right? Car racing or like speed cubing or whatnot, everything, even golf. That's why I tend to stay away from golf is I know I'm going to like lose my life doing it. So gaming was back then an intensive life for me. It was more than studying. It was, it was the biggest part of my life. I played a lot of games, but I wasn't just playing games, but I was very analytical. So I try to like optimize the way I train, optimize my configurations, computer settings, like everything, your keyboard, mouse. I bought $10,000 worth of mouse just to figure out the perfect configuration. Wow. And uh, all my like, uh, what do you call it, bonuses that came out of those competitions, I spent it, reinvested back into computers and hardwares, which is a terrible decision. I should have bought stocks. <laughs> but uh, I didn't even know what stocks were back then. Yeah. So I played games from my middle school to, I guess, first, second year of my university. And man, I was weighing like less than 50 kilograms back then. I was like really, wow. really skinny. So you're just playing all day. Yeah, nerd. I was not a very, very enough. serious nerd. Oh, I, <laughs> I drank, I don't know, Coke, hamburgers, probably. I didn't even eat anything. I was just playing so much. That's incredible. But I think that experience of pure flow yeah. uh, and also the experience of getting to the top of something mm-hmm. was very important because it really boosts your ego or confidence that you can actually achieve something at a world-class level. You know, that's right. I, I do believe that early on mm-hmm. in your formative years, let's say middle school or high school, before you get out there in the world, if you have an experience where you've created something, done something mm-hmm. that is then recognized by hundreds of thousands, millions of people, it affects the way that the, the path that you take, like the things that you want to do, because there's this rush and this like mm-hmm. enjoyment that you get out of it that's hard to replicate out of, right. out of other things. Do you think gaming, is that what kind of pushed you into studying computer science at SNU? I guess in an indirect way, but not in a direct way. Mm-hmm. What, I, what I mean by that is um, one of the reasons I chose NCSoft was I knew gaming and I had actually invested into NCSoft stocks and it was going up. So I was actually curious to learn more about this company. I was a small investor, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, started working there and I got a chance to talk with the CEO, uh, TJ Kim, for a couple of times. And he actually recommended me a couple of books that sort of changes views on life, how the world is like created and everything. And it was one of the book was about the complexity science, which is an interesting subject to study. Uh, What's the name of it? Complexity science. Complexity science. And it has something to do with like network science as well as behavioral economics, cognitive uh, psychology, neuroscience, and so forth. It's like literally more like a horizontal field rather than a vertical. Then I got so immersed into the field. I read tons of books. I learned about the like Santa Fe Institute and everything. So um, that's one of the reasons. So I played games, went to NCSoft. That's one connection. Then meeting TJ Kim yeah. and getting introduced to those books was a little bit different from gaming, but still the dots were connected. Are there any other resources, books, maybe favorite blogs or writers that you recommend for startup uh, entrepreneurs or first-time founders or maybe current leaders who are looking to learn more? Well, uh, I think it's pretty famous these days. You know, Paul Graham's essays are definitely one of my top lists. Uh, you know, video lectures, Stanford lectures about how, how to start a startup. 
is excellent. And just keep up with the news, but don't read too much of the TechCrunch or VentureBeat. It's good to know certain things, but don't get too immersed about it. It's the same thing as reading celebrity news like every single day. You get to know what's going on. You get to know the fashion, but you can't really understand the dynamics and the fundamental reasons for the markets or the dynamics behind it. So um, read some parts of it, but also I think just reading books is just so important. Like Peter Thiel's Zero to One, great implications. Books about Amazon, Google, all those books are good to a certain point. So just read, try to read at least one book for each good companies, even like eBay's Perfect, The per- Perfect Store. It's an excellent read. Founding stories of great entrepreneurs and great companies are always a great read, great food for thought. And what about any advice to first-time founders? Paul Grant puts it that way, be relentlessly resourceful. Mm-hmm. But I would say be tenacious and persevere. Tenacious being, you know, just try to do whatever it takes to achieve your goal. Mm-hmm. Always like, Drew Houston says something similar, like if you're a dog chasing a tennis ball, you just... You just follow the ball no matter what happens. You run through trash cans or whatnot. You just focus on your ball until you get your ball, right? And be tenacious about it. But don't do something that's illegal. I think the beauty of this software industry is you can still make money, do great things without being illegal about it. Whereas in other fields, it's a little bit more, I heard, it's a little bit more tainted. But um, just do whatever it takes to achieve that goal and persevere through hardships. Because, you know, when you're doing startups, Usually it takes many years to build a great company. You're going to go through a lot of difficult things, usually around people like founder breakups or employee issues or cultural issues. Mm -hmm. Usually the things that keep you up at night, unless you're like running out of your money the next month, the thing that keeps up you at night is going to be about people in general. Just persevere, survive. And then if you are doing well enough, then you will be connected to other successful people who've been there, done that or who are actually running with you right. with, uh, at other companies, so then you'll have a great community of startups. Yeah, I see a lot of recurring characteristics in, in you, John, where you have this passion for across various projects and, and stages in your life where you kind of put yourself fully into it, and that passion connects with this tenacity of just running after what you're going for. But at the same time, I also see that, that you are very team-focused and you, you care a lot about fostering a good work environment mm-hmm. and selecting and growing with the right people. Thanks very much, John. Is, where can people find more about Jiver, more about what you're working on? So um, we haven't done a ton of press releases yet, so I guess our website is the best source of resource, jiver.io. But feel free to shoot me an email. It's john at jiver.io if you have any questions uh, about our product, about our business, but also about startups in general. I'd be more than happy to answer your questions. I can't promise too much time, but uh, I'll try my best. I'm going to be very honest to candidate to people. I'm not going to be sugarcoating any advice in any way. Don't get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you. Hope yeah. to see you again soon. Thank you. This has been a great pleasure on my side as well. Thank you, Abel. That wraps up this episode of Startup Korea. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share this with your friends or coworkers or share on Facebook. You can find all the other episodes of Startup Korea online at startupkorea.co or on iTunes or SoundCloud. 
To show your support for this show, please subscribe, review, or share this show. Lastly, if you have any comments, suggestions, ideas, or anyone you would like me to interview, feel free to email me directly at able at startupkorea.co. This show is brand new, so if you like what I'm doing, let me know. And if you don't like something, let me know too. Until next time, take care.